First of all, it's tragic in this age of longevity to see life expectancy fall. And the United States is peculiar here compared to uh, other developed nations where we're seeing just this kind of steady increase. And the United States has stabilized COVID, certainly took a hit also on death rate in 2020. But these deaths are, as you said, deaths of despair. They don't reflect the capacity for longevity. They reflect uh, cultural hardships that people are facing. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. If you are new to Crazy Money, this is the show where we explore the connection between money and happiness, work and meaning through the lens of my guests' expertise and or money journeys. My guest this week is Dr. Laura Carstensen. She is the founding director of Stanford University's Center on longevity, an expert on human aging who has a lot of great insights on what implications living longer has for both our society and managing our lives. We'll be with Dr. Carstensen in one moment before we get there. Let's say hello to our new members of the Facebook Crazy Money Listeners Group. Yes, there's a crazy party going on on Facebook and you can be a part of it by joining the Crazy Money Podcast Listeners Group. In the past seven days, here are three people who have joined, Sue McFarland, Greg Boys, and Keenard Johnson, father of my friend and Rhodes College classmate, Matthew K. Johnson, Esquire. Now I know what the K in your name stands for, Matt. Hope all is going well in Greenville, South Carolina for father and son, and thank you for sharing crazy money with people that you know and trust. If you know people who enjoy great conversations around things that matter, please share crazy money with them. And while you're at it, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It means a lot. Helps other smart, curious people find great content like this. Great content like my conversation with Dr. Laura Carstensen. Let me ask you a question. Did you know that human life expectancy increased more in the 20th century than it did in all prior years of human existence combined? Let me say that again. Human life expectancy increased more in the 20th century than it did in all prior years of human existence combined. Think about that. In like 100 years, the length of our lives increased like 40%, more so than, well, what I just said. And we haven't made meaningful changes to the structure of society or to the pattern of careers that we had at the beginning of the 20th century right? We still have these phases where like, you know, you're a kid, then you go to school, then you get a job and you get married and you work for 40 years and you retire and die. Well, that structure doesn't really work anymore. It works in an age where you live to 68, right? But it doesn't work when you're going to live to 80 or 90, where you're going to have 40 years past your retirement age. I mean, it's nutty, right? So in this conversation, we talk about what do you do? What do you do with that data? Let me tell you a little bit more about her. Laura Carstensen is the founding director of the Stanford Center on Longevity and the author of A Long Bright Future, Happiness, Health, and Financial Security in an Age of Increased Longevity. She's also a professor of psychology and the Fairley S. Dickinson Jr. Professor of Public Policy at Stanford. She's a member of the National Academy of Medicine and has served on the MacArthur Foundation's Research Network on an Aging Society. She's earned all kinds of honors and accolades in her career, including a Guggenheim Fellowship. Dr. Carstensen has great insights into why older people are happier and why we should all be looking forward to staying healthy and happy long into life. Please, friends, enjoy this conversation with Laura Carstensen. Laura Carstensen, welcome to Crazy Money. Oh, was that it? That was, yeah. <laughs> I thought you said you were going to say that. So I no, I'm going to. That was me. That was the big opening. 
All right, Dr. Laura Carstensen, let's start again. <laughs> Laura Carstensen, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Laura, when you were 25, how did you define old? I can't remember, of course, but my, my best guess is I would have thought old was 65 just because the way people define old in the literature and social program, social security. So I think I probably thought 65 was when people became old. And how would you define it today, just a couple of years later? <laughs> well, I certainly think of people 65 as kids. It's hard to define old because it's so idiosyncratic, but I would think of old these days more along the lines of function than chronological age. You are well known as an expert in the field of aging and longevity. How did you become involved in this research? Well, the true answer to that is by accident. When I was 21 years old, I was in an automobile accident and broke about 20-something bones, ended up in an orthopedic ward for four months. And I was surrounded by old women, mostly, in this four-bed ward in a hospital. And during that time, I took my first college course, which was Introduction to Psychology, my dad was a professor at the University of Rochester, and he taped the lectures and brought them to me. So I was able to do that when I was in the hospital. So I was learning about psychology and surrounded by old women and observing how differently we were being treated. That is, I was being rehabilitated. And so many of these women who I got to know well, because we spent a lot of time together, were just being dismissed, essentially. And it made me begin to think about aging and how much of aging is a biological process. And it is, of course, a biological process, but how much of that is shaped by the social world. In what ways were they being dismissed or ignored? Wow. They would send in a team of maybe five or six orthopedists, physiatrists, uh, physical therapists. They'd be surrounding my bed and trying out different things to see what I could do functionally and how to help me. And then just literally they would wave to Sadie on the way out of the room. There was just not rehabilitation happening. Another woman who was in the room that we shared at one point had to sell her home in order to pay her hospital bill before they would discharge her. So she went to a nursing home from the hospital, which she didn't need to. She just didn't have another place to go. Mm. And why do you think that was? Is it the attitude that old bones don't heal or that there's not a lot of life left in them? So why bother? I think it's the latter. I think it's that there's a view that there's not a lot of life left. So why invest? Whereas when you see a young person, you say, wow, there's all sorts of possibilities here into the future. And when people interact with an older person, I think they're less likely to invest because they believe the payoff won't be as great. And this is becoming more and more important because we're all living a lot longer. In your TED Talk that's been viewed almost 1.5 million times, and in the book you wrote, A Long, Bright Future, Happiness, Health, and Financial Security in an Age of Increased Longevity, you explore the significance of the increase of our longevity in a very short period of time and implications for both individuals 
and society. If I can summarize just one point you made at the very beginning, it's more years were added to average life expectancy in the 20th century than all years added across all prior millennia of human evolution combined. Holy crap. Exactly. In a blink of an eye, in historical terms, we double the length of our lives. Break down that math because I had to listen to that a couple of times to really process. (laughs) So through most of human evolution, life expectancy was somewhere between 18 and 20. There's some dispute among uh, anthropologists, but that's the range. Life was really short. Infant mortality was super high, but people died by accidents and disease and starvation you know, throughout age. So lives were short. And then they stayed pretty short for most of human evolution. By the time we'd reached the Bronze Age, life expectancy was about 20. Fast forward to the Middle Ages, life expectancies reached the 30s. Again, fast forward to 1900 in the United States, and life expectancy was 47. Now, those are millennia we're talking about, where we see this length of life gradually increasing. And then in a century, not another millennium, Mm. in a hundred years, it was actually less than a hundred years, life expectancy went from 47 to 77. Today it's 79. And how did that happen? You have germ theory that came along at some point in that phase. You have infant mortality plummeted. What other contributing factors were there? No, it was really extraordinary kind of collaboration between basic science and culture change. So there were major breakthroughs in how diseases were spread, bacterial diseases, viral contagion. We became to understand that. Vaccination programs were set up so that young children would never have to suffer from diseases like polio and diseases that had killed and disabled so many before then. So we make these tremendous steps forward in medicine. But again, if those advances had just stayed within an elite, sophisticated community, we wouldn't have seen these kinds of changes. So it was public health in concert with these medical advances that really led to the increase. So it wasn't just understanding how diseases were spread. It was the implementation of the systematic disposal of waste, garbage collection. And there are historians of this era in life who say that you have your garbage collectors to thank as much as your physicians for longer lives. It didn't stop there. We discovered electricity and with electricity came refrigeration. And refrigeration meant that the safety of the food supply and the entire population was much, much safer than it had been prior to refrigeration. We put in place, we, society, our ancestors, put in place public education. So for the first time, all children, not just the privileged few, were able to learn how to read and write. And today, education is a better predictor of life expectancy than age. Education is a better predictor of life expectancy than age. So meaning... At some point in adulthood, we could make a better prediction about how long someone's going to live uh, by their zip code and their race and their education level, let's say, than how old they are. So if you are a relatively wealthy, highly educated white man in the United States uh, living, let's say, in Connecticut, 
your life expectancy is a lot longer than if you're 60 years old and you're a black man living in a poor community, let's say in Texas, and you have dropped out of high school. That's the kind of power of, of culture and its contribution to the length of life. Is the education a proxy for health behaviors like how I eat and exercise and I'm not exposed to toxins in my environment and in my, you know, what I put in my body, mm-hmm. things like that? That's the million dollar question. So education is this fabulous predictor of length and quality of life, but nobody really knows what education is, right? So nobody believes that I've ever met that it's how many years you sit in a classroom. And that's how we measure it. So it's really this blunt instrument, right? It's, you know, 11 years, 12 years. And that's how we measure education. But we don't exactly know how it operates. Now, there's certainly a piece of it that has to do with the way that we live our lives. As you said, that lifestyles, you learn more about health and you're better able to control your own environment and so on. So some of that is at the individual level, but also, you know, just this sheepskin piece of, you know, this certificate, this graduation certificate means that you get a better job. That means that you make more money. That means that you live in a safer neighborhood. It means you're not exposed to air pollution. It means you don't get asthma from the air pollution. You know, it's on and on. And so education is a marker for many complexities that influence life. In recent years, I've read about life expectancy actually going down for certain populations of middle-aged people due to deaths of despair. Can you touch on that for a second? Yeah, I think it's, first of all, it's tragic in this age of longevity to see life expectancy fall. And the United States is peculiar here compared to uh, other developed nations where we're seeing just this kind of steady increase. And the United States has stabilized covid certainly took a hit also on death rate in 2020. But these deaths are, as you said, deaths of despair. They don't reflect the capacity for longevity. They reflect uh, cultural hardships that people are facing. And so when you see deaths by suicide and homicide and overdoses of drugs, it's, it's, I think we need to think differently about what that means for life expectancy then if we saw life expectancy fall in the general population, if everywhere we were seeing life expectancy fall, you know, regardless of where you lived or your education level or the kinds of jobs and, and that we're not seeing. So it's pockets of the population where life expectancy is falling. I don't mean this in any way to be dismissive of it. It's just that we should understand what it is and appreciate that in other parts of the world, we just are seeing a steady increase in life expectancy. Okay. So the research you present in the book is fascinating, not just because I'm going to live longer than my predecessors did on average. Well, (laughs) theoretically on average, according to the actuarial charts anyway, I am N equals one in this population, unfortunately. So we don't know what's going to happen to me, but let's say I want to live till 80 years old. Like the actuarial charts tell me I'm 52 today. If I want to be a vibrant 80 year old, first, I have to live to be 80 years old. How do I do that? How to survive that long or how to thrive to 80. I've watched my parents die in the past couple of years. And fortunately for my father, he was 93 when he died and he was in really good shape up to 92. So it's really, I've seen quality be really more important than quantity of age. So how do I maintain quality of life as long as I possibly can? What's in my control? To continue to stay engaged in life. 
probably the biggest risk factor for going downhill fast when you reach what I used to think of as old age, that is that 65 mark or even 50, is that sometimes people, people believe they're coming to an end. They see their lives closing down and they start to shut down. So they're less interested in learning new things, less interested in exploring the world. And that is the recipe for real decline. People who stay physically active, and nutritionally healthy, informed about advances in diet, nutrition, lifestyles, are going to do really well as they enter and live in old age. It's very much an individual's control to the extent that you can control your life. So again, we have to keep, keep in mind that a lot of people don't have that choice. You know, they're working a job that is taxing their bodies. They are exposed to noxious chemicals as part of the job. And to say, well, why don't you make a different choice? You know, in those circumstances is grossly insensitive. But if you can control your life, you're privileged enough to be able to do that, then there's an awful lot we know about what people can do to stay healthy. And nothing's more important than learning and exercise. Not a lot of time to go to yoga if you're working two jobs. Exactly. Should I be worried about getting old? Doesn't old age mean I'm going to be alone and cranky and unhappy with my lot in life and missing what I used to be, this vibrant person you're seeing in front of you today? Yeah. Well, that's the belief that many people hold. And probably the best news from the literature and the psychology of aging is that just the opposite. So that as people get older, they're more likely to forgive. They're more likely to feel gratitude. They're more likely to see the good in the world and to forget about the bad. People become more emotionally even-handed, more uh, emotionally stable as they grow older. And so happiness actually seems to improve with age very much in contrast to these stereotypes of old age and old people being miserable. There's just not a lot of evidence. Is that because aging makes people happier or do happy people live longer? There's a little bit of both, but the happiness coming with age would account for more of it than happy people living longer. So a lot of the benefits that we see come relatively early in adulthood or old age. So they start in middle age. That's when we start to see this. So you don't see high rates of mortality in middle age in this country. And so most of this has to do with change within individuals as they get older. We've shown this in longitudinal studies with people from 18 to 90 at the beginning. We follow them over time and individuals become less negative as they get older. Why is that? Do they know what's important? They just don't sweat the small stuff anymore? You know, I think not sweating the small stuff is probably a really good way to characterize it. Here's the theoretical framework that my colleagues and I have worked with for years, and it's one about time horizons. And as people grow older, their time horizons grow shorter. So we have less time ahead of us. And that's why a lot of people think, well, gosh, older people must be miserable because they've got less time. I mean, that must make you anxious and sad and miserable. And if there's a paradox about aging, it's that as we have less time ahead to prepare for, 
we're able to live in the present. So we're able to appreciate where we are, who we're with, the world that we're in. We're able to stop and smell the roses. We're able to do that because we aren't constantly planning for the next year, the next day, the next decade. And relieved of that burden of the future, people are less negative, more positive. Is that spread equally among people of different races and classes and income brackets? I mean, are even people who didn't save enough for retirement, do they experience increased happiness in older age also? From our research, it does look like we see these improvements and emotional well-being across socioeconomic divides. But I want to be careful here. It is not the case that you could be living in just austere environment that's just miserable and you don't have food and you don't have shelter and so on. You certainly can break people at any age. (laughs) But in our work, uh, we've studied blue collar workers, high school education versus college and so on. And we still see within individuals, we still see this kind of improvement. Okay. So it seems to me that part of the happiness equation for older people is worrying about stuff that matters, not sweating all the things I've got to do, I've got to accomplish, defining myself by external achievements, et cetera. So part of that could be summarized by saying they've just lowered their expectations. They've accepted what they are and aren't going to be in life. And yet you also are advocating for people to work as long as they possibly can. So what's the right age for me to start saying, "Eh, how important is all this stuff? Like, when should I stop really trying for extrinsic motivators? You know, I think that this pattern that we see where people shift from living in the future, you know, always sort of one step into the next day, year, month to living in the present. I think that's an an adaptation that makes a lot of sense. When you're in your 20s and your 30s, you really do need to think about the future And thinking about the future, you need to do a lot of things that you may not enjoy so that you can increase the odds that your future will be positive. So you might engage in discussions with people that you're not particularly fond of. Customers. We call them customers (laughs) in sales. (laughs) That's that's, right. It makes sense because you, you need to invest in your future. I think, again, as the older you get, the less you have to do that. And I think here's the other thing about humans is that we're really pretty good at dealing with the cards we've been dealt, whatever that is. What we're not good at are the what ifs, the if only, you know, am I going to meet my soulmate? Am I going to have enough money? Am I going to get that promotion? Am I going to get the next new job? Am I going to get to move into that brand new house? And these are all things that if you've got some control and you might be able to achieve them and you might not... People engage in lots of effortful actions to do that. And it's good. What happens when you're old is you don't have to do that. And so people can focus more on what they have. And it turns out for most people at the end of it all, it's other people in their lives that matter the most. It's most meaningful. Not whether you lived in the biggest house or you got that job or you got into the college that you wanted to get into. Uh, when you come to the end, your able end of life, you know, you're able to say, and I don't mean your dying day, I just mean your, <laughs> the last years of your life, people can appreciate what they've got. I've had a lot of conversations with people about my age who have 
accomplished a lot of the things that when they were 25, 30, they thought were going to make them happy and fulfilled and all that stuff. Now we're 50 and we've got all these things and, you know, saved a little bit of money, paid off our houses or still have a house. And retirement is in the inevitable question is, okay, what next? Implied in this question is two things, sort of what do I want to accomplish before I die? And what do I do with the really, the vibrant work years that I have left? I mean, whatever the number is, 15, 20, 25, depending on the individual. How would you help people in midlife think through that transition? So, you know, we were talking just a moment ago about having to do a lot of things you don't want to do early on in your life in order to kind of achieve some plateau that you've set for yourself, right? And then you get there and then you say, well, now what? Now what do I want to do? And the way I think about careers, work lives, is to start with great breath. You have a lot of skills. You want to do a lot of different things. And then you'll find that some of the things you do bring you a lot of satisfaction and other ones are just a pain and you don't like doing them. That's true for most people and their work. What if we could have careers where we started broad and then we narrowed in and focused on doing more of the things we do best. And for most people, those are the things they love to do the most. You're not disengaging. You're just really focusing on those parts of your life and your work that really bring you satisfaction. Part of your studies to say that, okay, if we're all going to live till 80 on average, this has meaningful implications for society because for years it was very few people at the top of the age pyramid and a lot of younger people supporting them. And today it means there's going to be a much more balanced shape, more of a rectangle than a triangle. Right. So what implications does that have for society and careers and things like that? Yeah, the model doesn't fit, absolutely doesn't fit for our expectations, for employers, for workers, and certainly not for federal programs like Social Security. As we live longer, we can and likely should and likely will be working longer. And so those we need to rethink a model that says you retire at a certain chronological age and probably shift to a model that says, you retire frequently throughout your career. Sometimes you retire and go back to school. Sometimes you retire and get a different job. Sometimes you just take a break, but you don't have this expectation that there's going to be a point in your life before you're really old or really sick that you're just going to pull out of work altogether. But we'll continue to work and we'll come in and out of work. We'll also work less. Well, we can work fewer hours in a day and in a week, but don't count on stopping at some point. What we've done inadvertently when we've added these years of life, so we get these 30 extra years, as we were talking about before, we tack them all on at the end. My big question for you is where yeah. else would you put them? You can't put oh, them I up. I put them lots of different places. So I think, we, first of all, I would make childhood longer. And we could stop putting lot, so much pressure on these little kids to do more and more and more really early. You know the stories from all the parents who are trying to get their kids into preschool before they're born to get them on a list. And then they need to be able to read, you know, proficiently by the time they're two and then, they, you know, and on and on. And we're, we're robbing them of their childhoods. We've now got an opportunity to say, what does a great five-year-old life look like? Not what's it going to get that kid when they're six, but just to be able to take more time. So I think we should make childhood longer. We should stretch out high school so that people can, uh, 
do internships and go off and explore different jobs they might like to do and they might not like to do. Uh, we can have more public service, more community service where people volunteer and get engaged in neighborhoods. We could have a life course where parents don't reach the peak of their career at the same point in time that they're raising young children in their homes. So we can stretch all this out. And I believe we could create a much higher quality life course if we were to really think about where those years should go and could go, as opposed to just saying, we're going to be old for a long time. Uh, that's a problem. Basically, you're a baby boomer. I'm a Gen Xer. My mentality coming into the working world at the mature age of 22 was I'm going to graduate from college and my entire career is going to be a progressive upward trajectory up and to the right. And then at 65, I'm going to retire and be completely irrelevant until I die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that model yeah. doesn't work because it's 65. If you make it to 65 doing the thing you want to do, which is a huge assumption right. to make, which I did not, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even make it to 45. So, uh, <laughs> so that model's broken. So what should the shape look like? Is it a sine curve sort of gently rolling uphill and then it peaks at some point and we sort of ease our way down on a nice even pace that's not too hard on our knees? Um, I would like to see lots of different roadmaps through adulthood so that rather than say we're going to do it this way, the life course you just described, which is what is supposed to happen, right? You work really hard, you retire at 65, you're done. Uh, Then instead of that, we say, what would a dozen different paths look like through adulthood and begin to explore what might feel best for you or might be different for me and to to know that we have more opportunities. So I don't think we should take these longer lives and say, now we're going to live on this way and there's one way to do it. That's what we've been doing. I mean, that's the life we have now. You know, the, the lives we're living, the scripts that take us through life are ones that evolved around lives half as long as they are today. And they had to be that way. When life expectancy was 50, you better get your education find a mate, reproduce, you know, work like a dog and retire because that's all the time there is. We've got more time. And so we can do things differently now. I love the model of working hard time, at least throughout most of your life. And and I would start that, by the way, in adolescence. Again, part-time work, doing things to help other people, volunteer work. But doing for others, contributing makes people feel good. And if you retire at 65 and think, wow, bingo, now, you know, I got the gold watch or, you know, I'm going to just go play golf. That's a lot of green time. (laughs) Most people don't really enjoy leisure forever. I always think, because I am a boomer, you know, the, the Janis Joplin line, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And that's not a good model for old age to say nothing of the fact that if you're 68, there's no guarantee that you're going to be as active and as healthy to be enjoy those years. If you just keep your nose to the grindstone for decades before you give yourself a chance to relax. Yeah. And there's no guarantee you're going to be healthy at 45 either. I mean, there aren't guarantees. So we are going to have to make some bets on this, that we're going to be able to do things for a longer period of time, but we are learning an awful lot about aging and a lot about health. And it does appear that being socially connected physically active and intellectually engaged is the recipe for staying healthy. 
All right, I want to get into more of that, but real quick, if my kid isn't out of Harvard by 22, how is he going to make the 30 under 30 list for Forbes magazine? Yeah. And have you seen a 50 over 50 or a 60 over 60 list? And shouldn't we be making more of those to highlight the people who are accomplishing wonderful things at an older age? Wow. Yeah. As you were talking about the 30 under 30, I was saying you rip up that list. That's what you do. Or you can, you can have more lists if you want. Yeah, actually, any of those models of lists says you're supposed to do, you're supposed to live life in a certain way. And what we've really got is more time. So we should have more flexibility we should be able to have those kinds of life courses where, and, and it happens today too, not everybody you know, shoots out of a cannon in their careers. For a lot of people, they really reach their peak in their 60s or their 70s. There are scientists who are just doing extraordinary things around 75, 80, because they feel like they can think out of the box now. You know, and that's what we, we need to be able to do is be more flexible. So let's talk about that. How do corporations make space for this new brand of human capital, which is, let's be honest, corporate America is not a super friendly place for people over 50 and for a variety of reasons. But how do you make space for them? And what's the incentive to do that for those corporations? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And one is, by the way, there are more entrepreneurs now over 50 than under 50. And that very much reflects this inhospitability of the corporate world for a lot of people where they say, I'm just going to go do this myself. Thank you very much because it, it is not necessarily hospitable to older workers, is just the beginning of some really fascinating research on mixed-age workforces that looks like well, the bottom line is that when you have an age-diverse work team, uh, those teams are more productive than if you have an all-young team or an all-old team. Uh, that mixing ages is good. You're mixing experience and drive. So people of different ages have lots of different kinds of strengths. Younger people will have tremendous energy and learn quickly and are motivated to advance their own careers. Older people are less interested in advancing their own careers, but they're more likely to care about helping younger people and advancing their careers. When younger people make mistakes at work, they tend to be more expensive than when older people make mistakes at work (laughs) where they're not as expensive. So you put these teams together and you actually, there's studies showing that mixed aid teams are more productive. That's the story. And those are empirically supported statements. The corporate world should really be reading this literature because there's a lot of potential here. This sounds suspiciously Scandinavian, like the kind of thing that would come out of uh, out of Denmark. Are there communities or cultures around the world that are doing this better that we should learn from? Uh, Singapore is doing a tremendous job at designing their population and world to live and work better and healthier. So I think that's one place where we see some really interesting models of life. But By and large, when I look at the sort of global situation, I think what I see are countries that do one piece of this better than another country, but nobody's got it nailed. That's what I think is. So old people vote, older people vote. Old sounded a bit pejorative there, but like older people tend to vote and get involved. Why are we not seeing the change that you think we need at this point? 
Probably because older people are not voting as a block. Older people tend to vote the same way they voted when they were younger people. I've heard people say that people are you know, more likely to change their religion than they are their political affiliations. And so when people are older, first you see great heterogeneity, but there's still kind of some people you know, are voting for, for liberal progressive programs and others are, are not. And, but that's probably didn't change dramatically as they got old. And so we see more people voting, but you're still seeing lots of heterogeneity, lots of diversity there. You also, old people are ageist too. You know, like all the isms, you know, it also operates within the group. I often find it interesting that old people never say we, they say they. I talk about old people all the time and I say they. And I remember telling my colleagues that, especially because I talk, I often say these really positive things about older people. And when I could say them, it felt more comfortable when I say, well, we, we're, we're just better. We're more grateful. We're more emotionally stable. But we tend to distance ourselves from old age. You know who also doesn't say we is rich people. Nobody self-identifies as rich. It's always the other person who's rich. Well, right. I mean, I've, I might have, you know, objectively a lot of money, but that guy over there with the yeah. plane, he's yeah. rich. Yeah. So, And speaking of money, you can't have a discussion about this new shape of age distribution without somebody going, ah, oh, we got to dismantle social security. It's obviously broken, but you argue yeah. against that. Yeah, I think social security is, there's a problem with making across the board cuts to social security. That's the problem. Uh, It's a problem to say we're gonna raise social security age to 70. They could do that for you, they could do that for me and we'd be just fine. But they can't do that for the guy who works at the grocery store and a road worker or builder or something like that. It doesn't work. So it's really hard. And then it gets to be really hard to make those kinds of discriminations if you don't use chronological age as a yardstick. So, you know, we're going to say, well, women live longer than men. Women can't get their social security till they're older than men. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, there's, it's just really complicated. But what we should be doing is we should be offering people incentives to work when they can. And in my view, I think we should be offering more generous support to people who are disabled, often because of the work that they've done at earlier ages. And so I think we could start to try to move away from chronological age and toward a support for people who really need it. You said earlier that one of the reasons that you got into this was you saw how older people were treated in an environment when you were younger and you were being treated much better, much more fairly. When you get into subsidized medicine and things like that, even having that discussion, somebody's going to bring up death panels, right? Somebody's going to be like, well, you know, by definition, there are infinite needs and finite resources. So at what age does grandpa get a new heart? How do you make those decisions? Because there really is a trade-off between funding everybody for vaccinations or funding one older person for an extraordinary kind of surgery. How would you think about making those trade-offs? Well, you know, the best news yet is that you let grandpa decide if he wants a new heart at 90, because I'll tell you, there's a very rare grandpa who says, that's for me. My dad wanted a new hip at 90. He was crotchety and was like, I can't walk. God damn it. I want a new hip. You should get one. What The doctors wouldn't operate on him. They were like, you're not oh. going to, you're not going to make it off the table, Bill. Well, if it's for health reasons, it's one thing, but if it's for age, that's horrible. It's horrible to be able to say the idea, it is just 
it is so wrong to say we're going to judge the value of a life by how long somebody's been here. And just think about it for just a minute. I mean, are you going to say a young person who's a criminal who dropped out of high school, who that person's future is more valuable than somebody who's 50, but is contributing to society. We can't make those kinds of judgments. We should be providing health care for the population, high quality health care for people who need it. The, our major problem today with providing care in old age that's expensive is that we're giving people far more than what they want which is why I say, if you want a hip, you get the hip. If you don't want a hip's kind of a bad example, actually, because it's more like saying, do you want the fifth round of chemotherapy or do you want to say, I'm done? Or, you know, 20% of Americans die in ICUs. If you ask people where they want to die, the vast majority want to die in their own homes, being surrounded by loved ones. People don't want to be in pain, but they don't want to be in a hospital either. So we've got this terrible kind of a system where we're giving people too much care at the end of their lives, and it's not what they want. If we could just back up a minute and have people be able to direct the care that they want, it would not be as expensive. Is the trends you observed in your research about happiness and aging, have you experienced that in your personal life? Definitely. Definitely. I think this may be gendered, but I've talked to a lot of women who say one of the best things about getting old is you don't care so much what other people think. For young women, especially, but I think it's not just women, but I'll speak as a female. If somebody looks at you funny walking down the sidewalk, you're concerned. You think you offended somebody who is your concerned. You know, I mean, just everybody's opinion of you matters. And the older that you get, there are fewer people that you feel like you need to please. And it's okay to say you're not making everybody happy. You're happy. And so, uh, yeah, I think people do become more satisfied. Would you be willing to engage in some conjecture as to what the male equivalent of that would be? Oh, from you, right? You mean you're going to? No, you're going to. (laughs) I'm only 52. (laughs) No, but you can remember when you were the young. Are you happier now than when you were 20? Oh, 20. Gosh, I was so smart when I was 20, Laura. And I had hair and uh, I had big plans. You had big plans. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was. But emotionally, emotionally, you were happier? Well, no, I think I'm far more emotionally happier today. And because I really, I mean, I've got a family that I love more than anything that I loved when I was 20. I mean, I love, I hate to say this and it's a terrible thing to say, but I think it's true. I mean, like I love my kids more than I love my parents. I think the reason my parents wanted me to have kids was for me to understand how much I was loved. And you can't read that in a book and understand that. And so I feel like that keeps me more emotionally grounded. And I'm also, I've gone through some transitions at work that make me feel like I'm doing work that I'm meant to do. I'm doing it for the intrinsic rewards as opposed to the extrinsic rewards and not playing that game. I don't know if it makes me happier, but it certainly removes a lot of stress from my life. Yeah. So I think maybe the male equivalent for me anyway, would be sort of less of an emphasis on external status and more on focusing uh-huh. on what I feel to be important. Right. In here. right. 
You know, it's interesting because I think that is the parallel to the, the female description that where, where females tend to be more social. So it's kind of, that is the expertise you're trying to acquire is to be a good person embedded in your social network. And males often are more defined by work and they're reaching those aspirations, those kinds of uh, milestones. Here's what I think. We think that when people have long, bright futures where anything can happen, that that's what makes people happy. But actually, that's what makes people anxious, because when anything can happen, anything can happen. Right. right? right. And you don't know. And so as people begin to see where they are and what they have, they start to appreciate what they have more. One of the most gratifying findings I tell undergraduates at Stanford is that these are not the best years of your life. Emotionally speaking, you should see they just look so relieved, you know, those looks on their faces because everybody's telling them that all the time and they're miserable for all the reasons we're saying. They're nervous. They're trying hard. They don't know. There's so many what ifs. And when you say life's going to get better, they're just so relieved. But it's not going to get better for 22 years. (laughs) No, it's gradual. It's gradual. (laughs) You mentioned your undergraduates. Do you think they're less happy than undergraduates were 25 years ago? Oh, that's a good question. You know, it's so embedded in culture and the historical era in which people are in their 20s. If the economy's flourishing and people can get jobs, you know, it's really different But I do think that there is, again, some burden of longevity that is being placed on young people when they think, I'm going to have to work forever. No, I'm never going to retire. So I think, again, when we can begin to think about new kinds of life courses instead of just more of what we're doing right now and no relief until you finally are going to get to retire one day and stop working, if when we get to start to have those conversations, People get happier and there's no reason we should have to wait till we're old to be happy. If there's two things you want those undergraduates to believe in their heart about aging and their future, what would it be? That they have incredible control over their aging and what their lives are going to look like and that they should feel empowered to create their lives, not to just go along and live them by somebody else's script. The second thing is that Giving to other people, being important to other people, making other people happy is what makes individuals happy. If you can go through your life thinking about what you might be able to do for somebody, little things, you know, picking something up off the road that somebody just dropped to really helping somebody in their career. Those are the things that make people happy, much more so than what you can get. So it's much less about how many toys you've acquired in your life and much more about what you've given others. And the older you get, I think the more things you have to give. So you can give more of those things away. And that's very likely a big piece of the happiness story. Last question. Do you feel rich? Oh, I definitely do. Yes. Do you want me to say we, we rich people? Well, the reason I love the question is to let you interpret the question in any way you want to interpret it. I feel enormously privileged. Work in a great university. I'm surrounded by interesting people every day of my life. 
I have a family that I love and loves me back. And what more can anybody want? So absolutely. Amen. Dr. Laura Carstensen, if our listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find more information? The Stanford Center on Longevity, longevity longevity.stanford.edu is the website for our center. And you can track me and any of my colleagues down through that center. Excellent. We'll put links to that in the show notes. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Great pleasure to talk with you. Keep doing all the great work. Much to take away from that conversation with Dr. Laura Carstensen. Let's jump in to the takeaways. Number one, start asking yourself today, no matter how old you are, 35, 45, start asking yourself today how active you want to be and who you want to be when you're 75, 85, 95. The choices you make today from nutrition, exercise, career planning are going to have a big impact on the kind of life you're going to be able to live in 30, 40, 50 years. Takeaway number two, I thought this was really interesting. The most important thing, Laura said, is staying engaged in life. That's a choice for the most part. Now, obviously, there are externalities, health, things that are outside of our control to some degree that can kick us out of life, that make it harder to stay engaged with life. But to a large extent, staying engaged with life is a choice. As she said, nothing is more important than learning and exercise. As we get older, it's harder to make new friends. It's harder to push ourselves out the door and take social risks. But it's really, really important if we want to stay engaged in life. Takeaway number three, start acting old now. Yeah, because happy people live in the present, appreciate who they are, who they're with in the world, and they're able to stop and smell the roses. They can do that because they're able to stop planning about this year and next year and the decade after that. And I'm not saying don't think about the decades in front of you. By all means, do. Going back to takeaway number one, you've got to think about them when you consider your present consumption of food, booze, drugs, and how you exercise and all that kind of stuff. But maybe in the best way you can, integrate what old people know about happiness and what matters into your life today. Be proactive about spending time with people you love. Maybe uh, let go of some of those people in your life that suck up all your energy and don't add value to your life. Whatever you do, smile because you can be assured that your best days are ahead of you, that old age is actually a good thing. So we should all be doing our best to be getting the good juice out of life. Thanks for staying all the way to the end. I've got a great conversation next week with Wharton professor, Dr. Katie Milkman, whose new book, How to Change, is selling very, very well, getting a lot of press. And I know you'll find that conversation interesting. If you have a minute, please rate and review Crazy Money. Those ratings go a long way in helping potential listeners understand the extraordinary value that we're creating here. Hope it means something to you. And if so, write a review. Thank you. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.